What would you think of a valuer who values a property without looking at its location? You have asked him or her to value a shop, and they study the square meters and the condition of the shelves, and they look at the display cabinets and the checkout counter. But they do not consider whether the shop is located at Regent Street or at the B location in East London or somewhere in the back and beyond in the Yorkshire Dales. Or they're looking at a house. <coughs> and they carefully check the number of rooms, the bathrooms, the condition of the kitchen, the decoration, the garden. But they do not consider whether the house is located at Carbis Bay, in St. John's Wood, or right smack in the middle of an industrial estate with no other views than the blind walls of the manufacturing halls around it. The appraisal would be a total nonsense, and it could be misleading. And well, so it is with the biblical text if you do not look it, at it in its context. There is a well-known television program, I'm sure you have seen it, Location, Location. Well, if you study a text, you should be thinking context, context. And our text this morning contains the warrant for the Lord's Supper, but also more, the context. And at the Lord's Supper, we often hear the verses 23 to 29 read, the words of the institution and the exhortation for the self-examination, which is the topic of our meditation today. And this liturgical use of the text often defines our understanding of the warrant and the self-examination. And the self-examination then often focuses on three, indeed, very important questions. First, let everyone consider his sins and accursedness, so that he, detesting himself, I'm using the masculine here, may humble himself before God. That is the question, are we convicted of our sin and do we repent? Or when it's all said and done, do we think about ourselves as a pretty decent fellow or a jolly good girl? And then there is the second question. Let everyone search his heart, whether he also believes the sure promise of God that all his sins are forgiven him only for the sake of the suffering of the Lord Jesus. And that is the question whether you believe God when he tells you in the Bible that there is this promise of forgiveness and that it is only through his Son. Or are you thinking, well, it is probably important that I am a pretty decent fellow or a jolly good girl? And then there is the third question. Let everyone examine his conscience, whether it is his sincere desire to show true thankfulness to God with his entire life and lay aside all enmity, hatred, envy, and to live with your neighbor in true love and unity.
That is the question about the sanctification. Do you have the desire to turn toward God? Or do you want to go on as the pretty decent fellow or the jolly good girl? And these questions about the conviction of sin and about believing God's promise and repentance and sanctification have a very important place in the life of every Christian. Not just before the Lord's Supper, but every day. And these questions also have a healing and a joyful place as we reflect upon the forgiveness of sin that is achieved by the Lord Jesus. Because if we do not believe in the forgiveness that the Lord Jesus offers us, then it is very hard to admit guilt, because then there is no way that we can avoid and get rid of our feelings of guilt. And if we remain burdened with the feelings of guilt, it is very hard to admit that we did something wrong. Then it's easier to deny And if we deny, that is not the beginning of an improvement. So these questions are important, but they also need to be considered in their context. And our text contains more than the verses usually read. And (coughs) this morning, we will look at the context in in which the Apostle Paul himself placed these words. And that's a context that we may be less familiar with, because they contain all these statements about divisions and factions, and about being hungry and drunk, and having houses to eat in, and illnesses, and waiting for each other. Which are usually not read at the Lord's Supper. But what does that all mean? And what has all that to do with the Lord's Supper? Now, the scripture, we believe, is its own interpreter. And we should not and we do not have to impose our own views on it, whether they're orthodox or otherwise. But that does require that we listen very carefully and read the text in the context the Holy Spirit arranged for it to be placed. And in order to understand what was happening in Corinth and what Paul was describing Maybe first some background on Corinth and then on the letter. Now, I'm probably not telling you anything new if I tell you that Greece is sort of a big triangle pointing south. And that at the tip there is a strip of land that leads to the peninsula of the Peneloponnesus. And that is called the the Isthmus of Corinth. And that was a crossroad of trades and of shipping. Now, the city had been destroyed in 140 before Christ, and it had been rebuilt only a couple of decades before the Apostle Paul. And it was a city that was dominated by two ports, Cangria in the east at the Aegean Sea. You can read about Cangria in Acts 18 and Romans 16, and then Corinth itself on the Gulf of Corinth leading to the Adriatic. And actually, they had built a road across that isthmus that they used to haul ships from one side to the other if it was too dangerous to sail around the south. Now, why am I telling you this? Well, because Corinth was a big town and a new town. It wasn't homogeneous with established traditions, 
Many people had only recently come there from very different directions, so there were many influences, many different ideas, and they felt that they themselves were open-minded, anything goes, everything can be discussed. It was big, brash, new, diverse, money-driven, large differences in wealth, and little stability from tradition and social fabric. The town was also known for its loose sexual morals. It sits under the Acrocorinth, a rocky outcrop with its fortification on top, a little bit like Edinburgh Castle. But on the top was also the Temple of Aphrodite, with a large number of temple prostitutes, which the city was literally looking up to. It was also religious tolerant and secular. Think about the attitude of the proconsul Gallio. And a very clear feature of it was that there was a religious variety with often religious meals attached to it. And these meals were frequently a way of networking and doing business, where each brought their own food and things often got out of hand, gluttony and drunkenness. And at such meals, rich patrons would then often invite new popular preachers who had a nice idea to be discussed. And these preachers, of course, had to look and sound the part. Sonora's voice, shock of gray hair, and an interesting idea to discuss. And the divisions in town between rich and poor were reflected often at what happened at these religious meals. There are secular descriptions from that time describing the different treatment people got. And I guess the Greek gods were not too bothered as long as they got their votive offerings. And it is in that situation that then the Apostle Paul appears. Now, Paul wasn't apparently a big speaker. He didn't look the part, and he didn't ask for money. But this Paul did not fit the ideal picture of one of these traveling preachers. And maybe Apollos was a more elegant speaker. That's why they had all these divisions at the beginning of the letter. And also his message was very different. There was equality before God. There was neither man nor woman, Jew nor Greek, slave nor free. All are sinners, and for all there is the free offering of the gospel. And that message was very odd and very unusual. And then after he had left, there crept in opposition and doubt, and the old habits from the temple meals were creeping back around the Lord's Supper. It was very difficult to bed down this new congregation in a Christian lifestyle. And then there is the context of the letter itself. Paul had spent probably about 18 months in Corinth, but then, and that's now a couple of years ago, had to leave. You can read it in Acts 18. And since then, there were undesirable developments in Corinth and in their relationship with Paul. There were tensions. And then Paul receives news from Corinth. A letter, this letter is in response to that news. And that news was not good. There were difficulties. And Paul identified for us two sources. The first was, the, was a message from people from the household of Chloe. And the other one was a letter from the congregation. You can read it in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 11. 
For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brothers, by the house of Chloe's household, by those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you. So we had an oral report. And then there was the letter from the congregation itself, which mentioned in chapter 7, verse 1. Now concerning the things of which you wrote to me. And this was probably a letter in response to an earlier letter from Paul, which hadn't been well received, because 1 Corinthians is actually the second of four letters. And Paul deals with the verbal news in the chapters 1 to 6, and then from 7 onwards, he continues to do that, but also deals with the topics of their letters, of their letter. And here in chapter 11, he first gives them praise for remembering him, and then he talks about worship and the role and the behavior of women therein. Maybe that's a topic that they have brought up in the letter. And then in our text, he moves on to another topic related to worship, now probably in response to the verbal news, and that is about the way they celebrated the Lord's Supper. And first he praised them, but not now. And that is where our text starts. And after our text, he continues to talk about the unity of the church in chapter 12 and then the importance of love in chapter 13. Now, with that background in mind, let us turn to the text about the Lord's Supper. Now, the Lord's Supper has many aspects, and we can only highlight a few, so it will not be complete. But I would like to summarize God's message for you this morning as follows. We are instructed to examine ourselves when we celebrate the Lord's Supper. And we note two things. There are the questions of the examination. Do we understand and partake in the Lord's Supper as a commemoration of the Lord's sacrifice and as a communion, a fellowship of the body? And then secondly, what are the conclusions of the examination? Do we change, if necessary, our behavior? And having changed our behavior, do we then come? So the Lord, through Paul, instructs us to examine ourselves when we celebrate the Lord's Supper. And there is first the questions of the examination. Do we understand the Lord's Supper as a commemoration and a communion, a fellowship? And then there are the conclusions of the examination. Do we change, if necessary, our behavior? And having changed it, do we then come? Now, if you look at our text, we can discern four sections. First, there are the verses 17 to 20, which starts with, I'm not praising you, and it ends with, I'm not praising you. And in between, it describes the disapproved practice in Corinth. And then the second section are the verses 26, 23 to 26, where Paul describes what the Lord's Supper really is and how it should be celebrated. And then in section 3 and 4, he draws two conclusions. Both start at the beginning of the sentence with the same word, therefore, in verse 27, therefore, examine yourself and thus, in that way, eat and drink, 
And again in verse 33, therefore, coming together, celebrate in communion. You see, here is how it probably was in Corinth. The Lord's Supper was celebrated during a normal meal, like actually the first Lord's Supper, which was a full Passover meal. It wasn't a token meal like it is today. And it was celebrated in the house, in the houses of rich church members who had the space. So no church buildings and maybe also only parts of the congregation. But what was happening then is that these house owners treated their friends and the important people different. They were invited in the triclinium, the dining room, which probably accommodated somewhere between nine and twelve people. But the rest, and that could easily be 20, 30 people, were put in the atrium, the inner courtyard. And then there was rich food and lesser food. And the rich people who were at leisure appeared earlier and started earlier, and the poor people who had to work all day could only come at the end of the day. So all the bad habits of these religious meals were back. And the fellowship meal... To the Lord's Supper, the people came, as it were, with the knife and the fork to still their hunger and do their networking. And then, in addition, at times, people brought their own portion and ate it themselves in front of the others. Or the host was discriminating. Some, important friends, family, the mayor, the preacher man, the senior minister, they would sit at the rich table in the dining room and have too much and get drunk, while the others were to squat in the hall and the lobby and would go hungry. And Paul apparently heard that this is how they were celebrating the Lord's Supper. And he uses in the verses 17 to 20 and then again 33 to 34, five times the word, when you come together in church or in one place. And this word, synagomai, is used to indicate church meetings, not just casual meetings. And that was going on in these church meetings. I heard it, he says, from Chloe's household, and I'm inclined to believe it, that there are divisions. Now, the divisions were not about doctrinal differences. There is no mentioning of Judaism or liberalism or anything like that. But in the verses 21 and 22, he says, This is not the Lord's meal, but it is your own meal. Because each takes his own and starts ahead of the others, or even devours his meal. And the result is that one goes hungry and the other has too much. And in doing so, you are despising, he says, the body of Christ, and you are embarrassing the have-nots. You see, the problem was that the Lord's Supper was no longer recognized as a communal meal of the people from all walks of life, joined together as the followers of the Lord Jesus, who celebrated the remembrance of him. And Paul is very upset. I praise you not, he says two times. And this is not for the better, but this is for the worse. And this is not the Lord's Supper, but this is your own supper. And this is not how it should be. I do not praise you. And why not? And how should it be? Well, that he explains in the second section, in the verses 23 to 26. 
Now, the introduction to this section is the standard Jewish wording. What we received from the fathers or from the prophets, and ultimately from God, we hand it over to our children. The word tradition has the same stem as the verb to hand over and to deliver. It is the content, what is received from the Lord and then handed over. And the content of Paul's teaching about what the Lord's Supper really is, should for the Corinthians and for us be what he received from the Lord Jesus. We don't know whether he received it directly or indirectly, but in any case, he speaks with authority. And he reminds them he had handed it over. It's the perfect tense. The action was completed sometime in the past. They should have known. And then Paul adds another poignant point. The first time this tradition, this handing over was instituted, to be handed over to all generations was the very night that the Lord was handed over. Handed over to be mistried and crucified. Handed over through a betrayal. And yet, at that anxious and difficult and painful time, the Lord extended his care to his disciples, who would shortly thereafter panic and flee. And he handed them this institution of the Lord's Supper to help remember him. The Lord instituted the Lord's Supper in his infinite care for his people. But, our text tells us, He does so in the form of a command. Take, eat, drink, and do. They're all imperatives. Given in love and given to help, but commands. And the verses 23 to 26 explain why it was wrong what they were doing in Corinth. Because this is not a commemoration. They were really using it as an ordinary meal to steal, to steal their hunger and to entertain their friends and their relatives. And he asked them, ironically and indignant, what? Don't you have houses to eat in? In other words, if you want to feed yourselves and your friends, you can do it at home. But secondly, this is certainly not communion. There is no unity and no equality before God. Paul's gospel was for Jew and Greek, for free and slave, and for rich and poor. And here some have nothing, and others are drunk. And the have-nots have been treated as as second-class citizens, and they are embarrassed. And the rich despise, says Paul, the church in maintaining these distinctions. Because it is commemoration. There are four versions of the institution of the Lord's Supper in the Bible. Three in the Synoptic Gospels, and the earliest, because the letter was probably written before the Gospels here in Corinthians. And this is the only one that has the words, do this in remembrance of me twice. Now, was it said twice, or did the others imply it and Paul made it explicit? We don't know. But what is clear is that Paul wants to give it much emphasis because this is not some meal and it is not even some religious meal. It is not some networking event. It is not some event to show off that you are rich, but it is commemoration and remembrance. Do this in remembrance. That is how we are to do it, the manner in which we are to celebrate. 
And what are we then to commemorate and to remember? First, this is my body broken for you. We, you, all of you, and I are to remember the Lord's death at the cross, the great sacrifice that he made for our sins. And we are to acknowledge our sin and remember that that is why he had to die this terrible death. And secondly, the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Luke adds here, which is poured out for you in parallel with the broken body. And Matthew says, this is my blood of the covenant which is shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. And all these thoughts are here. We read in Exodus 24 that the covenant was sealed by the sprinkling of the blood of the sacrifice. And then in Jeremiah 31 and 33, the prophecy that at some point in time in the future, the Lord renewed that covenant, which had been broken by Israel and resulted in the exile. And the fulfillment of the prophecy we read here, the covenantal promise of the forgiveness of sins is sealed, is made absolutely sure by the Lord's blood representing the, it represented in the cup of wine. And so the Lord's Supper is looking at the past, at the Lord's suffering for our sin. It is looking at the present, because we today have his certain promise of forgiveness of sin and the healing and the joy that that brings. And it is also looking at the future, until he comes. And that focuses our attention on the Lord's final coming on the clouds. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him, even so. And on us being then with him for That is what we are to remember and to commemorate. But you know, such remembrance is not just the mental action or activity of recollection, because it is also an activity. Proclamation, says Paul in verse 26. Now many are not comfortable speaking in public or praying in public or speaking about belief and about the Lord's sacrifice. But here we can all proclaim the Lord's death and we can clearly state and celebrate that the Lord died for our sins and that now we are his and that we rejoice in repentance and forgiveness of sins. It is in a way like Remembrance Day when the veterans march. When they do, they remember their comrades. But it's not just recollection because that they can do at home over photographs. They also march. But it is not a walk to stretch their legs because that they can do in the park. But they march past the memorial, pointing, as it were, to it, to remember and honor their fallen comrades. And through the event of their march, they also make a statement to all the onlookers. And what they're saying when they are marching is this, we remember them and we honor them, and we want you to do the same. And so we, 
when we go forward to the table, proclaim through an act which speaks, says the Apostle Paul, the Lord's death and his sure promise. And it is not a statement confirming that we are worthy or believers or faithful or had a conversion experience. It doesn't say anything about us. It is about the Lord Jesus and focusing our thinking and that of the onlookers on him. And then there is communion. The Lord's Supper is also communion. The Lord instituted this remembrance for his disciples and for all those sheep of the other folds. As it says, and other sheep I have which are not of this fold, and them I also must bring, and they will hear my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. From every place and time, through the world and its history, until, as we saw, he comes. His supper is for the church, for the community of his children. It is implicit in the verses 23 to 26 and more explicit in the verses 29 and 33. And you should note that just before our text, he said in 1 Corinthians 10, the verses 16 and 17, the cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? And the bread we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we, and here he clearly identifies the body with the church, though many are one bread and one body, for we all partake of that one bread. And then afterwards in chapter 12, he goes for all 31 verses of the chapter on to speak about the unity of the different members of the body. Before in chapter 13, he moves on to speak about love. That is the context of this section about the Lord's Supper. Now the words body of Christ can refer to his actual body, to the element of bread representing his body, and to the church. In this last sense, he uses it in the chapters 10 and 12. And Paul is also thinking about the body in that sense in our text. And in his indignation about the wrong use of the Lord's Supper, we hear him ask in verse 22, Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? He's clearly referring here to the church. And when in verse 29 we hear him warn against not, we hear him there warning against not discerning the body. Now in the surrounding text we should notice that Paul is very articulate. He always combines bread and cup and often says, of the Lord. He does it five times. But not here in verse 29. Here it is, the body. Now, there are translations which adds the Lord's body, but that is an over-translation. Why? Well, I think Paul had both aspects in mind. Not discerning the body is not understanding what the elements represent, but also in line with how he used the expression in the chapters 10 and 12, it is not respecting the communion of saints in the disrespectful and embarrassing treatment of the have-nots. So the Lord's table is for all his children to be celebrated in unity. 
That was the Lord's Prayer, remember, in John 17, the same night of the institution. He was praying that they might be one as he and the Father are one. And all his disciples and his followers, the many of Matthew, the Jew, the Greek, the slave, and the free, they need to be one. The Lord's Supper needs to be a communion, celebrated as a community which lives in harmony and unity. And then having set the standards, we come to the self-examination. Because having rejected their practice in the verses 17 to 22 and repeated how the Lord's Supper should be celebrated in the verses 23 to 26 as commemoration and communion, he then draws his first conclusion in the verses 27 to 32, and it starts with, therefore. Therefore, verse 27, you can't go on like this. You are celebrating in an unworthy manner. Paul uses here an adverb, not an adjective. It is not about what we are, but how we do something. It has sometimes been read as an inquiry into what we are, whether we are worthy to partake, holy enough, devout enough, pious enough, righteous enough, converted enough. But the question is not whether you are good enough, That's not what the text says. The question is, do you celebrate the Lord's Supper in the right manner? And do you understand and accept it is precisely not a statement about ourselves, but the commemoration of the Lord Jesus, past, present, and future? And it is to be celebrated in a loving, unified community of his children. And that question of the self-examination in 1 Corinthians 11. Because if we take it the wrong manner, in the wrong manner, not commemorating, or not as a communion, and we go on hating, and, hating each other and feuding with each other, then we are, verse 27, guilty, and verse 29, in for judgment. And Paul does it, take it very seriously. We read in, chapter, in verse 27, guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus. Now, that's not because the bread and the wine are special. The elements are not sacred. And the Roman Catholic or Lutheran view is a misunderstanding. They read is as equals rather than representing. It's a bit like you go to Parliament Square. You know, you can can point at the statue there and say, that is Churchill. Well, of course, we all know It's not the man himself that climbed on that pedestal. It's a statue representing him. And so the elements represent the Lord and his suffering and his covenantal promise. But having said that, the misuse of the Lord's Supper is nevertheless serious. Because it is like somebody is trampling on a country's flag. Factually, some chap is standing on a piece of cloth. So you could say, well, what's the big deal? But since the flag represents the country, he is really insulting the people of that country. And that is what Paul is saying. If you do celebrate the Lord's Supper and use the elements not respecting how you are to celebrate, commemorating in communion, and thus what they represent, then you are wiping your feet of the Lord. 
And so we heard Paul's instruction to examine ourselves when we celebrate the Lord's Supper. And we noted in the first place what the question is for the self-examination. Do we celebrate the Lord's Supper as commemoration and as a communion? But then secondly, there is also the question, what are the consequences for us if after the self-examination we are concerned that we may not be celebrating the Lord's Supper in the manner we should? What conclusions do we then draw? For example, if when confessing our sins we keep part of it back because we want to keep a corner of our lives to ourselves, or if we are not accepting the sacrifice of his death as the only payment for our sins because we believe that we still need to add something, Or, for example, if we continue to live in hate with our brothers and sisters and are not prepared to give up the quarrels and the resentment and so not celebrating as a community, as one body of Christ, then we are not commemorating the Lord in the manner we should. But what then? Now, some have pointed at verse 30 and said, oh, there will be a curse, a physical affliction. Now, the Apostle Paul does indeed prophetically identify in this particular situation in Corinth the illnesses as a warning to them. But he does not say that this is always the general and necessary consequence. And indeed we all know that there are many people who partake the Lord without the proper understanding and many of them are in a ruddy good health. Others have pointed to the verses 27 and 29, and said, well, this will result in eternal condemnation. This is a sin which cannot be forgiven. But that is not what Paul says either. If that was true, he would not have written this passage, because clearly the Corinthians had gotten it wrong. And if that was irreversible, he should not have bothered writing. But in fact, Paul says exactly the opposite. It is, as always, Paul's intent, also in these stern warnings, not to beat us down, but to get us up. And discipline is not revenge or punishment, but it is restorative, intended to save and bring back the sinner. And that is what he says in the verses 31 and 32. We judged ourselves. Now, that is not sitting in judgment about ourselves whether we are good enough, Judging here is the same verb as in discerning in verse 29. And what he is saying, if we did discern the body, i.e. celebrate the Lord's Supper in the right manner, then we would not be judged. But even if we did get it wrong and did not discern the body and are judged, as the Corinthians in Paul's view were with these illnesses and deaths of verse 30, then that is discipline to warn us and again aimed at our salvation so that we may not be condemned with the world. That is how the argument ends in verse 32. So what is Paul's objective and what does he want the Corinthians and us to do? What are the conclusions that we have to draw from the self-examination? Well, there is one thing that we should notice. Not going is not an option Paul provides. 
You can read the text as many times as you want, upside down, from left, right, right to left, but it's not there. It would be unthinkable for him. The self-examination is to ensure that we have understood what the Lord's Supper is and how we are to celebrate it as a commemoration of his sacrifice through which he sealed for us the new covenant which he gives us as the sure promise of the forgiveness of sins. And of course, Paul doesn't say, well, if you understand that, but you do not want to change your behavior, you can carry on with your lives and activities as before, just to be on the safe side, don't go and partake in the Lord's Supper. No, the outcome of the self-examination is a change of behavior. Not a change of who we are. We are and remain sinners. But the self-examination is not into what we are, but how we behave. And says Paul in verse 28, examine yourself and so in this manner implicitly change your behavior if necessary and so eat and drink. Now this is often read as examine yourself and if the test is positive then and only then may you and are you allowed to eat and drink which suggests that there is conditionality and optionality, but that's not in the text. So, in this manner, is the opposite to an unworthy manner. But in this manner, verse 28, you know what it says there? In verse 28, eating and drinking are not subjunctives. They're not giving you an option, now you may, but they are imperatives, orders. Because in not changing our behavior and in preserving some sinful corner of our life to ourselves, or not accepting his sure promise and then not going to the Lord's Supper, we are not only depriving ourselves of the joy and the blessing of his table, but also ignoring the Lord's command. So what then? Well, change your behavior. That is also the final conclusion of verse 33, which again starts with, therefore. And we see the second topic return in Paul's emphasis again on communion. Sometimes it's translated, when you come together, when you celebrate the Lord's Supper. Well, it shouldn't be understood as if you come together or partake, because literally it it says, coming together. So your participation and your partaking is presupposed, is presumed. And then as when you come together, wait. Now we can probably broaden the meaning of that word wait to receive, welcome one another. Because in Paul's day, one group started earlier and ate the best food, and so they broke the communion. And nowadays, we can break the communion in other ways by hating or by ignoring or by excluding or marginalizing each other. And if that is the case, then the self-examination for the Lord's Supper tells us to change that behavior and then to come in communion. So briefly then and in closing, the Apostle Paul instructs us to examine ourselves when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, and we noted two things. First, There were the questions of the examination. Now, it is not an inquiry into what we are, 
or into our qualifications or wordiness or characteristics. Because wordily, as it's translated some in the old translations, is not an adjective, but it's an adverb. It is how we celebrate. Do we understand and partake in the Lord's Supper as a commemoration? This is my body which is broken for you. We look back in the past at the Lord's death for our sins. And we need to understand that our sins were that serious. The cup is the new covenant in my blood. Because today in the presence we embrace and rejoice the reality of his certain covenant promise of the forgiveness of sin. And then secondly, do we understand and partake the Lord's Supper as a communion? Poured out for many. The Lord died for his people. Not for the sum total of individuals but for the church, the body of Christ, the covenant community, his manifold flock. Until he comes, with his people of all ages, we look forward to the future of his coming. And then there are the conclusions of the self-examination. What are we to do if something is amiss? Well, it is not to withdraw or not to go. That is not an option that Paul provides. But it is, if necessary, to change our behavior. Understand that the serious, understand the seriousness of sin and accept the sure and unconditional promise of forgiveness and then live in love for God and His people. And in doing so, in this manner, come. Thus, in a worthy manner, a man and a woman is to eat and is to drink. Because in the final hours, just before the anxiety of the Garden of Gethsemane and the cross, the Lord, in his great care, prayed his high priestly prayer for communion, for us to be one and to be one with him. And he instituted the Lord's Supper as a commemoration, as a remembrance of his past sacrifice, his present forgiveness, and his future coming. And that steadfast love and that infinite care you are to remember and to rejoice in when you go to his table. It is a loving order for you to do this. And this gift is not just for the devout woman further down the aisle. And the order is not just for the saintly man at the other side of the church. That is not what the Lord said. He said for you. Do this together in communion with that man and that woman. Do this in a worthy manner, remembering me, my body, for you. Do this. Amen. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we come before you to first of all thank you for giving us your word and for giving us your Son and for giving us the Lord's Supper instituted to help us in remembering him as your children, as your flock. And Father, as we are look forward to this week, we ask that you be with us. 
that you be with all those who are in need, who are concerned, who are worried about health, about work, about other things. And Father, we ask that you reach out to us and that you be with us and that you help us because you are our Father. And you have sent us your Son who was suffering for us and that is why we may come before you to ask this. And Father, we also ask that you help us to live as your children so that through our lives we may testify to your love. And Father, we also pray for those who work in your kingdom. We think about Harrison, we think about all the missionaries that we support, because there are still so many people who are unreached and untouched by the great and glorious news of your Son. And Father, we ask that your good news of forgiveness, which relieves people of the burden of guilt and helps them to enjoy life and look forward to you and your coming, that that news may go forth and that many will embrace it. And Father, we also pray for those who sit in authority over us. We know that they have many difficult challenges in front of them, and we ask you to give them wisdom and integrity as they take decisions that need to be taken. And Father, in this context, we also pray that things may go well with this pandemic so that at some point in time things may return to more normal, also our worship services. And Father, we thank you for your word and for your great gift, the gift of your Son that we hope to commemorate, to remember next week in the Lord's Supper. We ask all these things, not because we deserve them, but because of the Lord Jesus. Amen.